I'm Betty Salonik, CEO and founder of Accelerate Investors. Welcome to our podcast, Chief Investment Officer Conversations, which brings to you what is on top of mind for the world's leading CIOs. In our conversations, we will explore their background, their current investment strategies, and their global outlook. Welcome to part one of my interview with Charmel Maynard, Chief Investment Officer and Treasurer of the University of Miami. In this episode, he shares with us how he became treasurer at the age of 32. He imparts his advice on how to become a Chief Investment Officer, and Charmel discusses the endowment's increased interest in alternative investment strategies. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Charmel. How are you today? I'm excellent, Betty. Happy Friday. Uh, it's another sunny day in South Florida, so doing, doing all right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down virtually with me for today's conversation. Why don't we begin with you sharing with us who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Charmel Maynard. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of the University of Miami, as well as the Treasurer of the University of Miami. Uh, in my current role, I wear two hats. Uh, there's the traditional higher education treasury hat. So I do things like manage our $2.5 billion capital structure, um, our liquidity, uh, issue debt issuances, things like that. And then in my second hat, um, I also manage the university's investable assets. So that's three main pools. It's our endowment. Um, it's our defined benefit pension plan that is closed to new participants. And it's our short-term working capital pool of capital. Before diving further, let's step back for a bit. We'd love to hear more about your background. Where are you from, your career history, and how did you end up at University of Miami? What drew you there? I'm ha happy to go into that, Betty. Uh, so I was born in Trinidad in the Caribbean. Uh, so it is by no uh, coincidence that, I, that I'm in Miami now. I'm warm-blooded by nature. Um, I grew up between Trinidad and Georgia. So my dad was in, was in Georgia and my mom's side of the family was in Trinidad, which I was very privileged to be able to go back and forth between uh, those two places. Uh, when I was about 15 years old, I went to boarding school in Massachusetts, primarily because I thought I was gonna be a basketball player. Uh, I realized really quickly uh, going into college that I was not good enough to be a basketball player. And I think that's where uh, I started doing some, some some other extracurricular activities. I was very fortunate in college to to intern at Aerial Capital Management that is now run by John Rogers and Melody Hobson, absolute legends in the game. And at Aerial is where I, I found out about investment banking. You know, I went around asking a lot of PMs and, and other investors, hey, what do you think I should do? I, you know, I went to Amherst College, which is a liberal arts school. I was a political science major. Uh, so nothing to do with, with, with finance or accounting. And they said, well, I, I would recommend investment banking. That, that, that should get you a really, really sound foundation in, in corporate finance. So you know, I read two books. I read Monkey's Business and I read Liar's Poker. And you know, I got some advice saying, hey, if you think you can get through that, you should try investment banking. So I tried it. Very fortunate to get an internship when I was a junior uh, in college at J.P. Morgan and that's where I ended up spending about 10 years of my, of my, of my career doing leverage finance. So I focused on, on raising capital, primarily high yield bonds and loans for things like leverage buyouts, for, for M&A, for general corporate purposes. Um, and it was at JP Morgan where I met one of my mentors who, who ended up moving to Miami first with the firm, with JP Morgan at first. 
and he met the then CFO playing basketball down here in Miami. One thing led to another, and he's now the treasurer of the University of Miami. So he calls me and says, "Hey, you should come and be my you should come and be my assistant treasurer." At the time, Betty, you know, I was a third year VP. I was in New York banking, J.P. Morgan. I thought I was the coolest person in the world. Uh, shows how much I knew back then. And he calls me two to three months after he gets a job, and me telling him, "No way, I, I don't want to work at a university and and move to Miami," and says. Are you sure you don't want this job? Because I'm about to hire somebody else. I really think you should think long and hard about this this job. By the way, this is what we're doing. I just uh, we're restructuring the capital structure. I just issued a bond for the university. Uh, I just I just raised a syndicated revolving credit facility. All the things that we've been doing for the past ten years at J.P. Morgan. Oh, and by the way, we get to completely restructure the investments, which include those pools of capital I spoke about and. At that moment, it sort of it clicked in my head about wow, this is sounds like a phenomenal job that marries what I've been doing um, and trained to do for for almost ten years, which is you know the capital structure side and debt management and, and, and debt investing, but also um, then transfer that into the investing side of it. So at, at that moment, I moved down to Miami with uh, no friends, no no family down here, just just sunny uh, sunny Miami. And about a year in, he he resigned. Uh, he had his first child. He he wanted to spend time with his family. Uh, that's what working in banking for twenty plus years, I guess, would afford you. And you know, a lot of the reasons I moved to Miami were to work with him again. Again, this was one of my mentors. This was a friend, and true to his nature, he had built me up. Um, he'd done a great job of building me up to the board, to our COO, to our president. That at thirty two. Uh, and a person of color, a uh, black person, at, at that, that they felt that I had what it t- what it took to be the the treasurer at the University of Miami, where the typical profile of a, of a university treasurer does not look like me and is not my age. Uh, so I, I was very very lucky at that moment. Wow, that's a pretty awesome story. Well, one I want to give a shout out to Ariel, who is a supporter of Accelerate Investors. So that's great that you had the opportunity to intern there. And two, what did you think when you, at 32, you were given this opportunity and what advice would you give to anyone who might be scared or worried about taking on a big responsibility? Yeah, I I, I was very scared, Betty. Um, You know, I, I had confidence in my ability you know, I think that my predecessor had set me up very, very well to, to be successful in this job. Uh, but but it, it is, you know, when you get to that position where the buck stops with you and, and, and if you mess up, it, it's on you, it can be daunting. And quite frankly, I, I did what I do when I have any tough decision. I reach out to my mentors, right? I reach out to my mom. I reach out to prior coworkers. I reach out to people like John Rogers, you know, people who I've who I've collected essentially, for lack of a better term, who I now consider my mentors, and ask them, "What do you think I should do?" What you know, you know, if, if they if they were work for a company, what did you look for in your treasurer? If they're an investor, what do you think about being the CIO? And at the time, Betty, I didn't I didn't touch on this. It was just a treasurer. There was not the, the title CIO attached to it. And we can talk a little bit more about that about subsequently them adding that to the title. And, you know, after talking to, you know, probably nine or 10 people, I felt really confident that I had at least 80% of, of the do not do these things, maybe not what to do, but these are the things they would avoid. And 
I'd really, really encourage people who are who are new leaders to to talk to the leaders who they who they respect, right? That that they know in their in their network, right? And try to draw a little bit from from everyone um, what you admire in, and then you start honing your own leadership style uh, from from uh, from just talking to people and, and taking a little bit from from the mentors that you have. Thank you for sharing that. And yes, would love to hear about how you obtained the CIO title. I think that is something that unfortunately we don't see many black and Latino CIOs. And yes, I think people would love to know how that process went. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, especially in higher education, that, that there's a, a plethora of different um, structures. It just so happened that at the University of Miami, there never was a chief investment officer. So in the treasury office, both the investing as well as the, the more traditional treasury all rolled up to the same office. And discussions that, that I had with, with, with senior and executive leadership was about a multitude of things, right? We, we, were, we, were, we were growing the program. We, you know, at the time when I joined, we had about $850 million of, of assets under management on the endowment. We're now a little bit over a billion three. So we were growing rapidly. And, you know, we talked a little bit about that, unfortunately, the importance about the title, right? It's, you know, when you're talking to, to, to a GP, whether, you know, it could be Sequoia or Vista or, you know, you know, some of these larger name brands, it matters that they know that they're talking to the CIO. Also, on the fundraising side, you know, if somebody is giving a large gift to an endowment, um, unfortunately, that title matters, right? They want to sit down and they want to talk to the CIO. So it also has an advantage on, on the advancement side and fundraising side. So anything in a university when it's going to be the first time that you're that you're anointing this title, as well as anything that that includes chief, you know, you got to run it through the process. So, you know, we had a lot of discussion about how would this help the University of Miami? And ultimately, I, I was very fortunate that the board and the executive leadership went ahead and, and, and added that to my title. That's great. Glad to hear that. You recently participated in the Acceler Investors CIO Roundtable, and one of the challenges that was discussed is the lack of diversity in investment management. For instance, we discussed that you're one out of a few Black CIOs on the asset owner side. What advice would you give to anyone, but in particular to a Latino or Black person who has aspirations to become a CIO? Sure. And you're right, Betty. It's it's unfortunate. I think the number has, has grown over the last year. Probably, I think when when I was uh, when I was promoted, quote unquote, in March of last year, I think I was one of three. I think now the number is closer to six or seven in, in, in higher education specifically. That doesn't include foundations. So, so we have more than doubled, but but the absolute number is still small when you think about you know the hundreds of endowments that are out there. In terms of advice, I think it's twofold. So so for current students, so people who are are still in university or colleges and, and they're still exploring, uh, I strongly implore them to reach out to their own university's investments office to, to start exploring whether or not there's a student internship process, right? So there are a lot of, of, of larger plans, you know, Yale is one, Notre Dame was one where, you know, they almost exclusively hired people who, 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 who were alum, right? And they, they had programs and we were lucky to start our first internship program last year that, that turned out to be extremely successful. And I think even we underappreciated how important that was for our students, right? So at the time, the, the, the young person was, was interviewing for, it was, it was during the school year, 
Uh, so they were interviewing for summer internships. And they said that almost at all the internship interviews, they wanted to talk about the endowment, right? They wanted to talk about what we're doing, what what, what were they doing throughout the year. And it was then where, where beyond us being able to, to, to leverage the incredible talent pool that we have in our backyard, it allowed them to hopefully get a, a leg up and get a springboard into a career, even if it wasn't with, with our investments office. So um, I think a lot of, of, of programs and universities have internship programs. So I think that's a great way to at least get exposed to, to, to what we do in the investments office. And the second one is similar as if you've already graduated, you're in finance, you're in a different industry, Again, it's to reach out to the investments office. It, it is our, we are here for our student and for our alum. Uh, we always return a call or an email if somebody says we're an alum, we're a current student. Again, the whole reason that we're in the role that we're in is because of those students. So you'd be surprised how, how these things work um, and when, when jobs are coming up. But, but I think the first place to start is with the network that the whole reason you went to that school was in theory because of the network that you were going to gain. And I'd highly encourage people to to at least try to sit in, even if it's a paid or non-paid internship. I actually worked at Rice University's endowment on the investment team, and I was not a Rice alum, and I was the odd person out. And, and you know, when I went to Amherst, again, I was interning at financial institutions, uh, you know, asset management firms and investment banks. And it didn't cross my mind once to, to see, you know, should I go talk to the $2 billion endowment that, that is, you know, down the hallway. And I, so I think, you know, knowledge is power. I think endowments and, and foundations are starting to get a little bit more into the news. So, you know, hopefully with, with podcasts like this and, and by word of mouth that we can get more people, especially, you know, Black and Latino uh, folks into, into this industry because it, it is a great industry. It's a great job to have. It's a fun job to have. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're really giving back. It's a nonprofit job to, to help others like yourself um, that, that, you know, results in things like scholarships, or professorships, research. So it is also a fulfilling job. So, you know, thank you for, for giving me this platform to at least let people know that, that those jobs are out there. Yes, thank you. And you make some really good points. That is one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because I wanted to democratize access and especially to younger people. When I was an undergraduate, I had no idea that my university had an endowment or what it did. So I'm, my hope is that younger people listen to this podcast and hopefully all the students at University of Miami will listen to this and learn more about their endowment via your conversation. And, and Betty, what's so interesting about it, right? You know, when, when you're in banking, you know, it's so myopic where you think, okay, if I'm in banking, this is for me to then jump to a hedge fund, right? Or it's for me to jump to a private equity. And the cool thing, and th those are awesome jobs, um, you know, have lots of friends in, the, in, in, in all those industries. But the cool thing is, you know, the, the endowment world is, it, is almost like the buy side to the buy side, right? So, so those GPs are pitching us to, to invest in their funds. Um, and, you know, you know, some of these larger, larger endowments are sometimes larger than the funds. So yes, you know, the money may not be the same and, and uh, you know, some, some, some of the cachet, but, you know, in terms of the knowledge base that you get, um, in terms of, uh, of the giving back and the fulfilling nature of it, I, I highly recommend it for, for young people who are interested in finance. Great, thank you. 
I'd like to now dive further into investing as University of Miami. Can you share with us what does your day-to-day role look like as CIO and also treasurer of the university? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, as I mentioned before, I, I wear two hats. So my day um, could look completely different depending on, on, on the budget cycle, on, on, on the calendar year. So in, in, in calendar years or budget years where we're issuing debt, a lot of the time, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be spending time with market updates. You know, where's the treasury? Where's MMD? Uh, what are, where are new issuances? Where do we think that the University of Miami can issue a new, new bond? You know, I'd say that that is probably a little bit more rare because we're not issuing debt every year. That's probably every three years. So uh, a lot of the time I'm probably spending 60, 40 time on, on the investments versus versus the treasury side. I wake up and I read, right? I, I, I read Financial Times is probably my favorite publication. I read the Wall Street Journal. I have Google alerts set for University of Miami to make sure nothing happened uh, overnight that I should know about the institution. And I'm reading just a ton of white papers, right? You know, one of my, you know, I consider one of my main jobs is to be informed, right? Be extremely informed, be up to date on sort of what's the latest thinking from from our partners and from thought leaders um, throughout the industry. So, you know, whether it's reading quarterly letters from our GPs or investment managers, um, or reading uh, new white papers from, from, from various sources, I read a lot. You know, I, I talk to my team constantly throughout the day. We use, you know, WhatsApp or Slack, whatever, whatever messaging, you know, tool is, is, uh, is happening at, at the same time. But then on the treasury side, I'm constantly in talks with my CFO, with my treasurer, sorry, with my controller, with the head of our, uh, you know, our financial planning analysis, because we're also managing the university's cash day to day. So if, if I haven't touched base with, um, you know, on the treasury side, my CFO, or my controller, my you know, head of FP&A, you know, I'm not doing my job well. And then, like I said, you know, my team, my investment team is extremely small. It's three of us total. So, you know, we're always sharing, sharing ideas, um, you know, sharing notes on managers we might have seen, sharing notes on, uh, on themes that we're seeing in the market. Great. Thank you. Per the University of Miami's 2020 President's Report, it says in your portion of it that you have a 66% allocation to public equity, which compared to some other endowments is quite high. From my understanding, the university does not depend on the endowment for a large percentage of its operating revenue. Why not increase your allocation to other strategies? So that that's a great question, Betty. Uh, so, so you're right. Um, we had about a 66 allocation of public equity. I'd say probably five percent of that, maybe five to six percent, is really funds that are being are, are stored in public equities that are being weighted that that are waiting to be called to to public um, strategies. So private equity, uh, maybe private real assets, and and, and stuff like that. Uh, historically, we have had a high percentage allocated to public equities. Recently, we have changed that strategy slightly um, and actually have increased our target um, or our range to private equity. Uh, it used to be around 5%, now it's around 10%. And recently we, we, we increased it more. But because we were starting from such a low percentage, Betty, that we knew or we think at least that building out a private program almost from scratch is gonna take you know, maybe a decade, right? Because we want to build out that program extremely thoughtfully. We want to be diversified by vintage year, by manager, by strategy, um, by geography, uh, by size, right? So 
you know, we want to get involved with companies across the entire life cycle from, from pre-seed startup all the way to large cap on mega, mega cap buyout. So, um, you know, we think that we'll be, you know, highly invested in public equities for some time, but, but we hope to bring that down closer to 60%, maybe into the 50s on a longer term basis, call it 10, 20, 20 years, you know, as we continue to build out our program into a sustainable program. Thank you for that overview. On the other hand, your portfolio, which you alluded to, is underweight even in terms of your target range to private equity and real estate at 4% and 3% respectively. And you mentioned this a little bit about being thoughtful about increasing your exposure to these asset classes. Can you tell us more and how are you approaching that? What types of opportunities look interesting to you right now? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we, we are underweight versus our peers and, and we recognize that. Um, but as I mentioned, we also recognize that, you know, jumping from, you know, call it 5% to 15% in, in one year is, you know, is, is wrought with a bunch of different um, risks. And yes, you could do things like secondaries to, to increase the exposure. But, you know, given where valuations are right now, we, we haven't found that um, very interesting, to be honest. So, you know, we can we prefer to go direct with managers that we've diligenced in extreme detail. Um, and, and pick a handful of, of, of managers that we truly believe in and have high conviction in and, and, and go with them. You know, the downside to that, as you mentioned, is, you know, you will be underweight for, for several years. But because we're in endowment and our time horizon is, is in theory infinite, you know, we want to make sure that we're setting up the endowment and the institution for success over, you know, 20, 30 years. So how we do that is that we, we're patient. Uh, we try to find the the, the best and highest caliber partners to go directly with. And in the meantime, it usually means that we're going to be invested in, 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 um, in, in things like, like public equity. On the real estate side, at least how we think about it or we have thought about it over the last several years is, is on an enterprise-wide standpoint. So the University of Miami has you know, several billions of dollars of real estate that we own and operate. And while we understand and appreciate the difference between opportunistically investing in real estate from an enterprise-wide standpoint. We think that we we think we can find you know similar risk-adjusted returns in other asset classes versus versus applying it to, to real estate. But to answer the last part of your question about what do we find interesting, you know, I think right now we, we continue to to allocate to privates. You know, we really think that that is a tool and endowments toolkits to help us outperform public markets. We still believe that there's a premium that can be generated over uh, over the public markets. And, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, particularly in, in sort of not necessarily the large cap, but more in the middle, small, you know, growth equity into venture is where we're really spending a lot of our time. Um, and that's partially because of the managers that we already have in our portfolio and that we want to, as I mentioned, sort of even out the full life cycle of a company. But it's also where we think, you know, investing is going, which is getting a little bit earlier and earlier. Um, and while valuations are going up, some of the people who are benefiting from that are, are the people who are focused on the lower middle markets as well in, as in the venture space. Thank you for listening to part one of my interview with Charmel Maynard. Stay tuned for part two. I'm Betty Salonique, founder and CEO of Accelerate Investors, and you've been listening to CIO Conversations. You can follow Accelerate Investors on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening.